Good morning, if it is morning. This is Sven Gulli, and you're listening to Too Much Scrolling. Scrolling for October 4th, 2022. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Hassenflow. We're just a couple of guys sitting around talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. And if you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. It's October, Chip. It's spooky, Steve. It's Spooky. spooky. There's ghosts out there. Spooky season is upon us. I don't know about in North Carolina, but here in Chicago, fall fell on us like a load of bricks well i will tell you that on my return from central america that i experienced what every person experiences when they return from a place where air conditioning is not what air conditioning is here (laughs) i froze my tail off steve i hit that airport and the air conditioning hit me and i was like oh my goodness i am so cold and i put on a jacket and i still wasn't warm enough and the time difference for you certainly is still affecting you. Yeah. Um, Central America, where we were, was um, was mountain time mm-hmm. here in the U.S. So I'm still working on that, Steve. Eventually, uh, I will get back to whatever the, the normal time is. Yeah, about a month from now, when the time changes. Good job. Exactly. Exactly. Film at 11. Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. Hey, Chip, did you see a movie this week? Steve, I went to Alamo Draft House to see a movie this week. I am so jealous. Those of you who have not been to an Alamo Draft House, it is an experience. It is what I wish all film going experiences are. I, in fact, South Barrington would be a great place mm-hmm. to throw that. Um, Alamo Draft House, because there is a theater there, the IPIC, this is shut down during COVID. But anyway, the Alamo Draft House here in Raleigh is wonderful. And in fact, it's kitschy. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. You go to the movie and you feel like it's an experience. And mm-hmm. that's what they do really, really well. And you can order food. While you were there, you saw a movie called See How They Run. This is the latest Sam Rockwell uh, murder mystery whodunit set in the 1950s West End of London. How was this movie, Chip? This is a spoof on Agatha Christie play. And uh, in fact, Agatha Christie does star in this film, Steve. Oh, good. So she is there. And it is a murder and murder. The, uh, it's a murder and you have to figure it out and dun, dun, Ro- dun. exactly it's exactly that yeah and everybody is a character from clue it's hilarious because they all play these parts and the beauty of it is it's a film that plays like a play About but play. i don't but you have to do it as a film mm-hmm. and everybody's a suspect Everybody has motive to do it. And then they tell you how it's going to end. And it ends exactly the way they tell you how it's going to end. So there's lots of, of, of uh, where they release information. There's plenty of how it, you know, describing how it's going to end. It's got some humor in it. It's got some enjoyment in it. It's, a, it's, it's what going to the movies was like probably in the 60s or the 50s. Okay. It was meant to be an entertaining uh, moment of joy. Aren't you glad we read Agatha Christie with Pam Bedore? Because that, that experience of how that story writing has led to all of these other stories is on top of my mind whenever we read such a, a story. I, I think this film was a, is a fine film. I, I don't think it's a one for the ages or anything like that nature. I, you know, I say 50 out of a hundred. Okay. That's not saying it's bad. It's just saying that when you go there, you're going to go through the movies and, and go through the entertainment value of it. But it, ultimately I don't think there's a lot when you leave it. Like most whodunits. I don't think there's, there's much uh, overarching conversation in a whodunit. It's just the fun of the, the adventure. Exactly. You could go to one of those mystery uh, dinners mm-hmm. where you know you, you figure it out. Certainly on the same level. I, I did enjoy this. 
I think they, they did great job on the sets. I think they did a great job with casting. I think that the uh, materials are used for the clothing and all that other stuff. Beautiful. They, it's exactly what that film was. And guess what the audience was, Steve, because I was surrounded by them. Uh, I, I hope that they were all on their Bluetooth and checking their, their digital watches. Well, let's just say the early dinner was probably on their, yeah. on their schedule. You were the youngest person in the room? Yes. Yes, I was, Steve. Yes, I was. So I enjoy, um, first of all, I enjoy the theater that I went to see the film. Mm-hmm. And I also enjoyed this film. And I think, once again, it's, it's a great example of why the theater is important. And I think that the community aspect of film going is something that we we sometimes forget about. I, I thought about seeing this movie at home alone or with my wife or with even my family, but going to the theater for the experience of seeing this together and, and having that community at least a little bit, even though you were the youngest person in the room, I, I think that that adds to it. Steve, I'm not the only one who got to see a film this week. Tell me what kind of scary things you got to see. It's spooky season and it's time for Halloween right around the corner. Sven Gulli's Halloween Bonanza started this week on our local uh, over-the-air television station and Sven Gulli's documentary Sven Gulli Uncrypted was on our screens on Saturday night. So, so what you're saying to me is that's a wordplay because uncrypted yes. could be unscripted. Yes, unscripted, uncrypted. Svenguli, our local horror host, has been on the air here in Chicago for 43 years. And this was an opportunity for that character to leave his warm and cozy dungeon and to walk the streets of Chicago and Berwyn. Berwyn! And to celebrate the the celebrity of this this wonderful local guy, Rich Coase has been giving us so much entertainment for 43 years, and he's he's getting to a stage in his life. He's turned 70, and he's getting to a stage where maybe, just maybe, one day he might hang up the hat and and leave the the history of Svenguli to a younger generation. Well, it sounds like there should be some wordplay. Maybe he could tweet something. Yes, Rich Coase is a master of wordplay and punning. He has tweeted on Saturday morning, retirement is not in the picture. He has said he is not retiring from the character of Svenguli. But on the other hand, the Svenguli Uncrypted ended with a search for the spawn of Svenguli. You might recall that in the 1970s, Rich Coase took up the mantle of Svenguli as the son of Svenguli. The original horror host, Jerry Bishop, retired, and Rich Coase took up the mantle as the son of Svenguli. Now we are seeking the spawn of Svenguli, and uh, the community is uh, in, in really excited about the idea of auditioning for this part so is there a significant difference between the original actor who plays Spinguli and the current actor who plays Spinguli? 43 years of history have certainly gone to evolving that character it is still a very silly very local presentation but the fact that me tv is across the country syndicated is certainly changing the way that the presentation happens chicago's horror host can be seen across the country and the the broadness of the jokes has changed a little bit okay and certainly i mean there's not many of them around anymore i mean alvira still is around a little bit i don't even know if she does a weekly show um Svengulli does a weekly show but mm-hmm. there's not that many of them all the rest of the horror hosts, the the big ones, have gone away. There's some small little markets that have their horror hosts still, but the, the nature of television has changed so much. We can stream any of these horror movies we want anytime, so we don't need somebody to moderate and to give us this material. And, and, and that's a real difference, is when they, the, when I say the heyday, mm-hmm. when these 
characters arrive. That was because Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon, they were looking for programming and that, and it had to be inexpensive and the weatherman or whatever it was who took the, the uh, job, it was a way for them to make a little bit of extra money. And a lot of these movies were cheap to get. Right. That's how mystery science theater started was we need to fill this time slot. How can we present this dumb movie in a way that's entertaining enough that people will tune in so that we can get eyeballs on commercials. That's Svengoolie. Uh, I'm still a huge fan and I look forward to what we're going to see in the future. And, and this contest, the spawn of Svengoolie. And, and was that the purpose of this was to announce that they are on the look, they're looking out for a new Svengoolie. That's that's the way that I see this hour-long special talking about the history of Svengoolie and specifically Rich Coe's in this character and going forward, how are we going to have this presentation? And and the real the real question we want to know is how can our listeners introduce Steve Fodor into being the uh, the spawn of Svengoolie? Let's just put it this way. If there is a voting for who is going to be the next Svengoolie, I will put that out on social media and tell you for whom to vote. <laughs> our, our good friend Sarah, who is a is is the ultimate super fan of Svengoolie, I think that she might be uh, a great candidate for this role as well. But I I uh, I might uh, might be making a video this week, uh, Chip. <laughs> Opening this week, we got some movies that maybe will will tease our fancy. The first one's called Amsterdam. This is Christian Bale and Margot Robbie uh, in the 1930s. Three friends witness a murder. Dun dun dun. Three friends, see, they're going to be watching a murder. See, yeah, 1930. You killed my brother. <laughs> this looks fun. Yeah. Let's just say there's only a couple movies that uh, look interesting. Let's run through a bunch of them, Steve. Real quick, let's go through it real quick. The next one's called Bro Mates. This is uh, executive producer Snoop Dogg presenting a story of two best friends, Josh Brenner and Lil Rel, who uh, have all sorts of adventures together. Yeah, this looks awful, Steve. Yep. Let's go to the next one. The Lost King is the story of an amateur historian who is trying to find the remains of Richard III from over 500 years ago. This is Steve Coogan. I do have high expectations for Steve Coogan's work. Yeah, and this looks interesting, and it's got a limited uh, delivery, so we'll see if, if we can even find it. Yep, another limited one, The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery. This is a movie based on the New York Times best-selling novel about a bookstore owner uh, that is struggling emotionally and financially. Boy, the book the book industry is in trouble, and uh, there's a lot to talk about here. So the young lady says, "Hey, you should read this book." And the guy and the curmudgeon says, "No, I'm not going to read it." And later on, he reads it, and then he calls the person up and says, "Hey, I read it." And they get together. And it's a love story. Wow, that's a that sounds like a great movie, Steve. It sounds like a podcast. <laughs> There's a movie called Signs of Love. Uh, this is Rosanna Arquette and two of Sean Penn's kids in a story about a young man struggling for a good life who meets a deaf girl from a well-off nearby family. There you go. Well, from the trailer, it looks like that we all have to build a resume, Steve. And these actors are going to have this on their resume. Yes, I, I agree with that as, as very much. There's only one big horror release this week. I think most of the horror movies for Halloween will come out next week. But this week we get Terrifier 2. This is the sequel to Terrifier, uh, a scary horror movie from 2016. Yes, Art the Clown will be starring in this. Yes. Yes, it's a horror film. Scary clowns. Always Steve, scary clowns. I want I want a movie where an actor really stretches himself. Do you, can you recommend one? <laughs> There's a movie called Operation Seawolf this week where Dolph Lundgren is going to be a German World War II naval officer. There you go. He's not going to be a Russian, Steve. He's going to be a German. Dolph Lundgren. Oh dear. There's a documentary called Battleground. This is the story of three women who are uh on a quest to overturn Roe versus Wade. Boy, this got out quickly, didn't it? 
Uh, it's probably been in the works for a long time, my friend. Well, Steve, there's one other film. Thank goodness it is a all-ages film that we could uh, possibly recommend this, this week. Steve, give us the movie. Lyle, Lyle, Crocodile, the live-action version of the beloved children's book is coming to our screens this week. Yeah, I never read this book, but my kids will know it because Sean Mendez plays Lyle. He is the voice of the crocodile, yes. Javier Bardeen, Constance Wu, Scoot McNary, and Brett Gelman, an all-star cast for this very family-friendly movie that, boy, they have been advertising for months, this movie. And do you remember how Sean Mendez got his start? No. How did he get his start? Steve, it was Vine. It was like those six-second videos. First you're a vine, then you're a crocodile. <laughs> book it, book it, book it. Book it, book it, book it. Book it. Book it. Brings us to our book and our book of the week. Hey, Chip, it is time, my friend. It is time for us to get more intelligent and smarter, maybe both. Pam Bedore is here to explain life to us. Good morning, Pam. Morning, guys. How's it going? So great. So great to see you. It seems like we've not seen you in so long, and and I don't even remember the last book that we talked about. (laughs) (laughs) It feels like a long time, and also it feels like September just went by in a blink. Uh, school started, Pam. Uh, school is is a lot of energy <laughs> that you and I spend, and so yes, September Woo! came and went, and uh, it's time to wrap up the first quarter in the <laughs> next week. By the way, oh gosh, is that true for you? Yes, now, you guys. I actually taught Sherlock Holmes the past couple of weeks, and I talked about you guys a lot in my class. I yes. hope you. Know. <laughs> we're famous, Chip. Well, well, we we are we're cautionary uh, tales, Steve. <laughs> Or cautionary tales. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. No, but, but you guys remember remember how much comfort Sherlock Holmes brought us in those early days of the pandemic? I mean, for real, those wonderful, we read the first 12 short stories in the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. You remember the redheaded league and the Christmas goose and the man with the twisted lip. Anyway, it was a very warm time for me with amazing recollections of our crazy daily podcast adventure in the beginning of the pandemic. And it was it was so important to have something to look forward to during that it time. It really was. And Doyle's work worked perfectly. Yep, mm-hmm. You can find all those sandwiches at irregularhours.com. Find all of those episodes daily, daily meditations upon Sherlock Holmes <laughs> and all of Arthur Conan Doyle's work. We, that was so much fun. We should uh, we should think of something else to do other than a pandemic, Pam. I know. <laughs> do we always need an emergency? Oh, boy. <laughs> Brings us to this week's book, my friend. Right? Upgrade <laughs> by Blake Crouch. It just came out a month or two ago and Blake Crouch we've read a few of his books up to this point in our book club he is really a great author with the techno thriller and this one is no different I I found I find him uh, on the level of say a Michael Crichton or a Dan Brown sort of like a a pop person who is uh, certainly grabbing the zeitgeist of the moment and kind of running with it there's certainly enough real science in it and enough fictionalized uh, thought to make it on that level with a Michael Crichton. I agree with you. Well, and part of the appeal of the techno thriller is that it captures the anxieties of the moment so beautifully, but then it exaggerates it so much that we think, okay, like our sort of stressful lives they're not so bad right it does both of those things it's not so bad compared to the existential (laughs) dread that is the future thanks and i kept trying to figure out where this fits in the mcu is this before the snap or after the snap (laughs) there's certainly that zeitgeist of that story of the avengers and thanos wrapped in here isn't there (laughs) Let's get into the plot a little bit on this one. This is all about 
the idea of the human genome project and mapping our DNA. We have a huge new division of science that is now capable of looking at DNA and altering it in ways that uh, might might be anxiety-inducing. I think that are anxiety-inducing for anyone who's paying attention to it. But I think like that brings us to another really big issue, which is that we currently face so many potential existential threats that not everyone's really thinking about genetic engineering and its potentials right? I mean, we have right now so many things we're concerned about. So we're concerned about the climate crisis, about moves in artificial intelligence that are really visible, about, you know, military conflicts, including perhaps people are starting to talk about nuclear anxiety again, which we haven't heard in in 20 or 30 years. It's it's a blast from the past. I know. (laughs) Thank you. If only we could be more concerned about time travel. But I'm just saying that this some very real threats from genetic engineering aren't even top of mind because of other crises going on. So this book taps into a few of those anxieties. The climate crisis <laughs> becomes the centerpiece of the anxiety of this piece. The, the author gives us this opportunity, quote unquote, opportunity to extinguish human emotion in order to solve the climate crisis. That that somehow that sounds like an evil scientist to me. (laughs) Yes. If we could only be more rational, my friends. That's the whole centerpiece of the plot here is, is our protagonist's mother is a geneticist who is apparently brilliant and has done brilliant things and has killed millions of people accidentally. That idea of the unintended consequences of small moves like genetics uh, is, is well represented here. Yeah. Well, um, like, like Putin or any Russian leader during a war, it's just fodder to uh to move them forward the idea of a decimation of a population in order to solve a different problem that's that's hard to take in this story certainly there's a lot of hubris in it and the idea that one person knows best for a you know species yeah it's very much back to that Thanos, that that snap of a finger that can eliminate this many people, therefore everything will be fine for all the survivors. That is some hubris that that I, it's hard to get past. And it also like fails to do the analysis of who's really contributing to crises, right? So you know when we think about the climate crisis, about which we have a great deal of data now, it's really the top one to ten percent of of the population of the global population who are emitting like 90% of the carbon. (laughs) So to say, oh yeah, if we just were to change the population dynamics, that's actually not taking into account how resources are currently managed or distributed. So, you know, it's a very, it's a, obviously it's a dangerous ethical dilemma. And that was one of the questions I had for you guys. Did this feel like a novel that was doing like real sociocultural analysis or did it feel like an adventure story with a guy who could save humanity you know it, kind of both maybe i don't know i think it's more adventure story than it okay. is <laughs> a, a deep dive into the numbers I, I i agree i think this is uh this is an adventure story it's kind of loose with a lot of stuff it's a fun adventure story. I enjoyed yes. the action of it very much, but yeah, the the critical thinking piece of of the Thanosing of of the world uh-huh. to save we can save the world if we only eliminate this many people and our ability to have emotions. Wow, that, that <laughs> that's some dark thinking from the author here. If there were some guidestones maybe in Georgia to help us out. <laughs> 
They used to be. I mean, they used to be. It seems like they're destroyed now. <laughs> you know, Chip, for a whole month since I last saw you, nobody talked about the Guidestones. <laughs> it almost dropped out of my consciousness. So I'm glad. <laughs> Welcome back, Pam. <laughs> All right. Should we place the, uh, the Twilight Zone music right here? <laughs> there there's some twilight zone elements to this story for sure thinking about changing two percent of our genome and if we change our genome by two percent we could be considered a whole new species and and what we have here is a geneticist who has access to that science who decides that that is the right thing to do to change her children into superheroes that that can have all of the abilities that we think of as as good of course there's a lot of pain that goes into that because the, one of the things was they changed their dna so that their bone structure was different so there was there was a long period of pain to this but do would you want to be a superhuman that's the big well, question well they weren't given a choice were they no, they were not. Their mother decided and and planted uh, booby traps for them to catch this virus. And, and not to defend her, the mother at all, but you know, Steve Jobs would say something like, "Well, you wouldn't know what you you, you wanted if it before it existed." Mm -hmm. This is okay. the Steve Jobs so, of geneticists. But you know, I'm not I'm not saying that that's the correct answer on that. This is something that was a personal decision. They had no choice on it. And all of a sudden, it created significant challenges. I, But I actually really, really enjoyed the part where Logan is starting to realize that he's changing. And, you know, it does give you pause. That notion, the way that he changed, was that he could read very quickly and he could read multiple things at once. And I will admit to you guys that there are way more books in the world that I want to read than I will actually have time to read, even if I very happily live to be 100 years old with great reading ability the whole time through. I'm not going to get through everything. So there's something very, very attractive about being able to read faster, also to be able to remember better. I forget stuff all the time and I forget plots and things. But then is it too much memory? Remember the book Recursion, where people like Blake Crouch is really interested in this idea of like remembering too clearly the importance also of forgetting and revising our histories. Yeah, there's there's a great line there between I have great memory and I have all memory. I have every moment and the traumatic moments are just as strong in my memory as the great moments. Uh, that that sends chills down my spine for sure. And the part where you have kind of revised in your own mind how you acted in the past or that mean thing you said that you softened in your memory, right? That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> but go even further on this. Uh, even if you had all the data and assuming your data sets were great data sets, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that you can answer all the questions. There are many questions that you could model out if you could try to, but they're really just their subjective values at the time. Like I, I, I value doing this over that. These, these are not necessarily answer. In fact, I, I'm reading a book right now that actually addresses this. There was a, a professor who was given the opportunity to move from Stanford to Harvard and he was weighing it out. Now his expertise was in decision-making. And um, he was questioned about it, like, well, you know, you just do any number of analysis for that. He goes, yeah, but this is real life. <laughs> exactly. So, and that's the point, is that even if you had incredible data sets like that, maybe it would help you refine a decision, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily make that decision or even, even be able to make that decision. And I think that part of what this novel is getting at is the hubris. I mean, that's the key term for the novel, right? Which Chip, you already brought up. 
but is the idea that sometimes, and I've been guilty of this, I bet we all have, you think, oh my goodness, look at the data on whatever, say the climate crisis is the one I think about. If people were just smarter, if they had better skills of looking at data and analyzing it the way I do, the way scientists I admire do, then everyone would agree. No, that's not that's not human nature. I mean, the the multiplicity of our perspectives is what makes us a really interesting and also sometimes dangerous species, right? This hubris idea of Logan's mom, you know, oh yeah, just upgrade everyone and people will be able to solve problems. Like that shows a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be human. It's a perversion of it. <laughs> And that's the, that's the plot. That is the story here is, is this mad scientist, this scientist who thinks she has all the answers, makes this happen with no choice on her children's part. And then the children, the brother and sister, have a very different view on what could be done with this new possibility, with this new superpower. And they literally fight each other for the right to hold the power of this uh, this is a good adventure story <laughs> it, it's good to get into the discussion of the science but the science isn't isn't great here now can i ask we're going way way back have you guys ever read the novel flowers for algernon sure that is part <laughs> of the the middle school reading list that's a wonderful, wonderful story. I want to say the short stories from the 1950s and um, the, the, uh, the novels from 1966, but the novel's a, an extension of a short story. But this is a sort of, it reminded me of this Flowers for Algernon plot, which I have actually taught before when I, when I was uh, doing a bachelor of ed and teaching in middle school, that was our read. And, um, but I did it with my library book group not that long ago. It's just a wonderful story of someone who gets this sort of upgrade. But the story of the upgrade is that it, it doesn't last, right? And so you can have these insights, but then you have to give something up. And I feel like in the in the Blake Crouch upgrade, this is a change to DNA that you can pass on to your children. So there's nothing to give up, but we all know there's always something to give up, right? So he's right. playing with the knowledge that we have from seeing these tropes in lots and lots of other places. And what we're giving up in this story is is that sense of humanity that that what that's makes it. all you us have to give up human. is your humanity, right? If, right, because that's all you have to do. If you if you could just be an, an automaton, just an emotionless decision maker, then you could make all the right decisions. Except they wouldn't I, be the right decisions because they're based on nothing but data. And what if you have the wrong data? Uh huh. That's. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting idea that we can expand upon and think about and, and move on. Very Twilight Zone-ish, mm -hmm. where we get to experience this and see the results of it. So, Steve, you asked, um, would you take the upgrade, right? Mm -hmm. And then, as we've talked about it, we're all like, it's terrible. But for it's terrible for a population, but for an individual... Would people take this upgrade? How many? What percent? At what point would you, if you thought, oh gosh, I'm not gonna, I don't, I don't want to participate in that, but then everyone around you did, now you wouldn't be able to talk about you're a subspecies with your friends who all can talk about quantum physics easily, right? So <laughs> it's a it's an interesting conundrum. We talk about that in my class where we talk about cyborgs uh -huh. adding computer technology to your body. If you chose to add this computer technology, you could do all these amazing things. But if you chose not to, you would be left in the dust. And who would get the opportunity to do this? Would it be the rich get smarter and the poor suffer from all of the things that they can't get? That's a, it's a big discussion about ethics of such things. One of the things that I thought was important was 
the idea of this upgrade allowing us to gain sensory input, understanding everything around us at all times. This is what our students and friends and family with ADHD have. They see, hear, feel everything, and they have to filter out and concentrate on certain things. Our, our narrator here gets to a point where he's having a hard time filtering out the parts that he's supposed to be paying attention to because he's paying attention to everything all at the same time. And I can imagine how that might lead to a, a little bit of schizophrenia, just an idea of, I see things that people, other people don't see because they're filtering it out. Uh, there, there's a little horror aspect to that for me, a little, uh, a mental game. Well, especially if you, you were unable to filter it out. Mm -hmm. And the idea, if you have, if you know, your Google, you're taking information, information, information. Pretty soon you have a whole bunch of information, but it may not be useful. You just mm -hmm. have a lot of information. More <laughs> data doesn't necessarily mean wiser decisions or something like that, especially if you're unable to concentrate on what is important. And I love the discussion of, of that's how we have this feeling that time slows down when we are stressed because what's happening is we are sensing more of the world. We are taking in more input and it seems like time slows down, but that's not what's happening at all. And I like that insight, Steve and, and Chip too, about that sort of neurodivergent reading then that you can do about Logan's struggle to initially process his upgrade. I like that. It's, I have quite a few students who are neurodivergent mm -hmm. and quite a few family members who are neurodivergent and I need to allow that to happen for them and allow them to process the things that they are processing and focus on what we need to focus on. It's, it's, it's a struggle for sure. And then one thing that's attractive, but again, you have to pay for it some way is when Logan reaches that point where he can do all of those things at once. He can actually sort of parallel process all of the stimulus that he's receiving. That just seems very utopian, but <laughs> like most utopian thoughts, maybe he doesn't quite work that way. Yeah, I, I can see how you would love the ability to listen to an audiobook and read another book and have a conversation <laughs> simultaneously so that you could get in all of that input that you that you crave. I, I can see <laughs> Pam in this book for sure. <laughs> Killing a 13, oh, 13% death rate. Who cares? Thirteen's <laughs> a small number. That's that's a small number. 13% death rate. Ah, that's acceptable. For an evil scientist. <sighs> exactly. Right. That's some of the numbers in, in our COVID pandemic. Some of those numbers were very small numbers. And they ah, it's a small number. Don't worry about it. No, those are people. Those are families. Well, research on how we can only process a certain number. You know, the difference, you know, when we really think 10,000 people died versus 100,000 people died, we can say that, but we can't emotionally process all of those extra people. We can really only process like tiny numbers emotionally. I think it was Adam Smith who wrote about that. He said, you know, we hear about some, you know, mass tragedy somewhere else, you know, in China, something happened, a hurricane went through or something like that, lots of death. And while we go, oh, that's really sad. But, you know, we're more concerned maybe like about a sliver in our finger trying to get that out. And it's not, it's just part of being human is our ability to separate some things. That, that, that doesn't mean that you, you don't have empathy. It's just, we just have, it's maybe how the human consciousness and brain is set up to, to take on challenging information. And I think that's one of the really powerful things about this novel is that when Logan says, oh, yeah, don't worry, I do have a great genetic idea. We'll just increase empathy. Um, that's not a terrific idea either for the reasons you just said, right? We have a defense mechanism built into ourselves to actually 
tamp down on our empathy when we simply can't process it. So, I mean, Logan's just as much of a mad scientist as his mom. He has a different formula, but he's doing exactly the same thing. And there's no reason to think it will go any better. And, and, and here's the deal. Those decisions get made with, without a consensus. Mm-hmm. Some, somebody just says, I think this is important and I'll inflict it on everybody else. Yep. That's the hubris for sure. And, <laughs> and I like his analysis of that thought with the two siblings that have very different yes. and very clear and very believable reasoning behind their thought. And as a reader, I was not sure which thought was the right thought in the story. I did not know whether we should inflict this upon the world to save ourselves or if we should not use this superpower. I, I, I was conflicted on that. You were conflicted on it? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. I I thought that both siblings had a very strong way of putting their thoughts out as something that would be useful to our society. Well, the writing is an exploration of the idea. Correct. But the, the idea of doing something to another person without their consent seems to be pretty clear. Yeah. Agreed. One of the sort of big questions that I thought this novel raised was when Miriam, Logan's mom, says, the biggest threat to our civilization is not climate change. It's within us. And that sort of brought up some of these big anxieties, these big existential dreads that we face. And I kind of asked us to put in order some of those current threats like climate crisis, nuclear war nanotech gone wrong, biotech gone wrong, AI gone wrong. I just named five. But you know, sometimes when my students tell me, I feel hopeless about the future, I'm like, well, well here's, here's four more categories <laughs> that you haven't thought of, kid. <laughs> you know, it sounds like you're paying attention, but I, we have, obviously, we, we can't face the future with dread. We have to face it with hope. But but this novel, I think, puts all of those things, you know, out there and sort of asks you to think about. Blake Crouch doesn't talk specifically about nanotech, but he does mention those other four, climate crisis, nuclear, bio, and AI. I mean, in what, in what order do you guys worry about those? In, or does it even matter, right? Or is it? I, I, I can't put those in order, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, first of all, from, first of all, they would change from day to day. It's a it's a different list. Uh, it, it certainly is. I mean, this last week, mm-hmm. NASA sent up a uh, I don't know a rocket to move an asteroid. Well, um, that is a risk. Uh-huh. That I mean, it's kind of a when will one slam into the Earth? Mm-hmm. Well, does that mean that we're going to have enough knowledge? So you know, every once in a while, you get a, a story that says. Hey, there's a meteor. We didn't see it, but it's going to be coming in, you know, so many millions of miles from us. And so the point is, is you you can't have perfect knowledge. And certainly as future reveals itself, you you can make adjustments on that. But today you would say, oh, well, what if Putin decides to to, to send off a nuclear uh, head. Well, certainly that would be more important and take precedent over pretty much anything. I think that the military uh, units that are in Ukraine have no care about what type of fuel economy a, a tank gets because the immediacy yeah. of the issue is pretty important. And that's something we talked about with the Ministry for the Future is that discounting of the future for today. You know, why are we spending money on space exploration? That's a waste of money. We should be spending that money on something today. That is a conversation that is always constantly being had. Isn't that the public goal where no person has gone before? That is that is the goal. (laughs) (laughs) But there were some parts in this novel that sounded a little minister of the future-esque when Logan was sort of reflecting on how exactly you just said, how we discount the needs of future people who are not yet born, but we must still think about those. 
I love how that study comes around in the next book like that, because yes, there was certainly a moment where that, I think the word discount was actually it was. used mm-hmm. in this tale. And, uh, and yep. I went, yes, I understand that because I read a different <laughs> book because Pam made me. And it was really long and not very fast paced, <laughs> but damn it, it had some really good ideas. And some great meetings, some fantastic <laughs> note taking in that book. <laughs> The power of bureaucracy, my friend, the power of bureaucracy. Okay, but guys, can we look at a couple of quotes? You know me, I'm sorry to be all English professory, but there were some great quotes I thought in this novel. So I just had a couple I want to look at. I think Steve, you might have as well. We live in a veritable surveillance state, engaged with screens more than with our loved ones, and the algorithms knew us better than we knew ourselves. That's about the current moment. Mm-hmm. That kind of struck a chord with me. I don't know about you guys. For sure. We are living in a new era with all of the algorithms and all of the knowledge that is acquired about us that we may not have access to. And the decisions that are being made for us through those algorithms is, is uh, frightening. Well, there, there it is. Once you go down a rabbit hole, the algorithms exactly. can take you further down the rabbit hole. They become, they, they certainly mm-hmm. could skew reality. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is think QAnon or think of the people who went in January 6th mm-hmm. and acted accordingly because they went down an algorithm that led them further down that thought- algorithm. For sure, they had the right information. They thought for sure they knew what they were doing and why they were doing it. And some of them now see that they might have been wrong. They might have been duped by the information. Right. And not not wrong, but like misled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some of the misleading is humans, but some of it is the way that we have obviously we've coded but the way that we have coded decision trees into our algorithm mm-hmm. it's a, so I, I don't know so I put like that on that. your list put that on your list of, of your of your top five existential dreads the algorithm. that's ai though right okay that's right. ai gone wrong okay. right good <laughs> not a number six no, don't give us any more. No more. <laughs> don't forget, humans are bad at processing bigger numbers. Five is a good number that we can process. We, we can count that. When it comes to existential threats. Um, you know, the quote, we don't have an intelligence problem. We have a compassion problem. That, more than any other single factor, is what's driving us toward extinction. I completely disagree with that statement, I, but let me ask you guys. <laughs> I wanted to agree with it. I, I, it seems logical to me. The logic puzzle of this is here's the problem is you care too much about whatever it is, but you don't care enough about the other thing. And it's the other thing that'll kill you. And, 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 and there, there's five. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what it all comes down to, right? I guess I just feel, and Steve, you and I both work with young people. My goodness, I I think the young people today are the most compassionate I've ever, ever met. They have so much empathy. They're so connected. It's what gives me hope for the future is looking not at Gen Xers like us, but looking at these kids. They're incredible. So they're, they're the products correct. of Gen X. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right, Chip. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. That, that was our generation's gift. Yeah. I agree. And I do think, and they're smart. Like, I think we've got lots of intelligence, lots of compassion. We, we just. Absolutely. This is, they're far smarter than any previous generation. They may not have wisdom because that comes with time and experience. But they, to, to where they are today with their knowledge and how they use their knowledge is, is pretty amazing. 
Which brings me to one of my favorite quotes. Being smart doesn't make people infallible. It just makes them more dangerous. <laughs> the, the intelligence, having that knowledge before having that wisdom can be hazardous. Well, it, it may take a lifetime mm -hmm. of intense study. I mean, think of, think of what professors are in general. They, they spend their life, they come in and they have these strong opinions and something like that. They, they get batted around because they have different ideas that are, are brought to them. They may come out with an idea and, and a, a sense of what to study. But towards the end of their tenure, they may come to a point where they may go, you know, I spent all this effort on something I thought was important, but maybe... I, you know, I'm, I'm humble with what it really is trying to say. Mm -hmm. Unintended consequences, unintended knowledge. And, and that's where, that's the life cycle, isn't it? Where you come in and, you know, war, 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 whatever the thing is. But eventually you get to the point where you're like, oh, well, maybe, maybe the peace of the world is me just not being in a conflict with, with everyone or mm -hmm. something. Could be could be any number of things. That was beautiful, Chip. That is that is that is the deepest philosophical thought we've had on this book so far. The, the well, the, the hookah is um... <laughs> the conflict <laughs> of the world is one thing, but the conflict of your home and your neighborhood and your community that's sometimes way more important. And, and again, it's back to that weighing of the, the personal issue versus the global issue. Yeah. I was going to say, Steve, that in terms of that sort of danger of intelligence, one thing that we saw in this novel that we also saw in our two Daniel Suarez novels recently was virtual torture. Oh, my goodness. Those mm -hmm. scenes were so hard to read in both Crouch and Suarez that notion of actually using artificial intelligence and direct neural stimulation in order to torture someone. <laughs> like truly the worst thing you could do to another person. If you do it artificially, it could be even worse. And so I just thought those were really like easy to process extreme examples that are quite cautionary. We've talked about torture on this show quite a few times. We are very much against torture and, and the, the entertainment value of a book that contains torture is, is palpable. The, you can feel along with that character, this happening. And yeah, that's the idea of virtual torture, adding technology to that idea uh, is terrifying. Well, particularly for a person maybe who's experienced some kind of real life, you know, mm -hmm. it, it certainly could, you know, would you really want to walk through it again? If I was mm -hmm. teaching this novel, I would definitely have a couple trigger warnings and that would be one of them for sure. Not as much as, as the Daniel no. Suarez. There's <laughs> definitely not as much more torture and, and virtual mind uh, changing is the nicest word I have for it. Uh, there, it's, it's lessened in here, but yeah, it's still there. Scary. Put that on the five list. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> You're trying to make the list longer. Stop it. <laughs> One of the quotes that I loved was, Free will did not exist because I could not choose my desires only whether to pursue them. I've been thinking about this for a while since we saw the three identical strangers documentary. I, they, they didn't agree to that experiment either, Steve. Right. The idea of nature versus nurture, how much of your decision-making is truly free will and how much of it is actually coded into your DNA. It's, it's a story that I've been thinking about for a long time. Can you truly choose or are you stuck to a certain pattern? And I'm not sure really there's a, there's a clarity to that. I mean, I think that there is something that's very, that is part of nature. Um, mm -hmm. But there is also, you know, people being put in really good circumstances or put in very poor circumstances certainly could take advantage of those for good or, or bad. 
So, I mean, it's sort of a mixture. And for individuals, the only thing you can do is control what you can control. And I think that as we get an increasingly granular understanding of genetic systems and perhaps of temporality, and as our science becomes more and more advanced, I think there is an existential anxiety, sorry to bring it up, about like, to what degree do we have free will, right? And that's something that we've seen in time travel novels, as well as in a novel like this. Mm-hmm. Very, it's a disconcerting thought. Like, what if we eventually learn that we, all of our decisions were already preordained, right? Mm-hmm. You mean like we're in a cu- computer so, simulation? Oh, Elon Musk. Right? I mean, there's, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Well, there's so many, there are so many thought experiments within the world of science fiction that kind of look at that really fundamental question that was at the center of enlightenment philosophy, which is to what degree do humans really have free will? It's a great question. We're not going to answer it here today. (laughs) And I keep bringing this question to my science colleague and she keeps going, stop reading science fiction. That is a story. (laughs) That is a fiction, not a science. Stop it. And I go, okay. No, but I mean, it's, you could, or it's philosophy, right? Like, I mean, and that's what that's what science fiction does is it brings together conundra from philosophy and science. Mm-hmm. So there you go. That's why we love it. So we get to the end of this story and, and I got to tell you, I loved the action adventure of this story. And then the end of this Blake Crouch gives me literally a punchline to the whole story and says that the decision to make an empathy virus was the solution instead of taking away our humanity by taking away our emotion adding empathy to the population was the right solution and 54 percent of the population is successfully infected with the empathy virus and it's like ah but that's not what we were talking about (laughs) and 54 percent is a very specific number I thought the exact same thing, Steve. And so, first of all, I guess so I agree. The number is way too specific. Mm-hmm. But do you want to say why? You say it, why. It, 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 this is definitely a reference to the voting in the United States for the presidency. And 54% voted for one and not for the other and those people are empathetic and good and the other people are bad like come on man that is not what i want in my science fiction that's why yeah that's why you have an editor who says yeah we, we don't want to do that you if you want your book to be timeless we need to kind of move it away so one way to read that is that that's a punchline the message is 54 percent voted against trump but the other way to read that, and I think, I think we're supposed to think Logan has just as much hubris as his mom and made a terrible decision. Hmm. Could read this as a reference. Hey, by the way, guys, we have to get outside of this us versus them thinking of this notion that some of us have empathy and some of us don't. We have to move away from that. So I think I took a more positive view of that punchline, as you call it. I think that's a good term, but I took a more positive view view of saying this whole novel is asking us to critique that way of thinking and Logan is our narrator so that thinking on his part is part of his unreliable narration throughout that's that's a very positive empathetic it's a way generous of looking reading, at it. I admit. that is a very generous <laughs> reading I, I i really was frustrated by that yeah. literal stopping the story to give us this political 54 percent number i understand that it's an us versus them situation that we are living in but we need to move past that and and they don't have empathy and we do is not helping anybody but logan being a crazy person with that idea right we can and his approach so i i mean it's generous, but I think it's it's also um, supportable by the evidence in the novel of an unreliable narrator. You're a very nice reader. <laughs> and I like almost everything. <laughs> yes, you do. 
<laughs> so what do you think? Is this a book that you could recommend to your students and to your colleagues, Pam? Absolutely. I found this very interesting and I love the conversation about it. I think it's a conversation starting kind of novel, which is one of my favorite kind. Chip, what do you think? This is a fun book. Uh, I think this is a good pop book. You know, we don't have beach reads now. Maybe it's the uh, Snuggly in the Blanket at the uh, Ski Chalet book. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fun little exploration. And I think that we're going to look forward to a lot of uh, Crouch's work over time. I agree. I think Blake Crouch is one of my favorite authors writing right now, and he gives us those moments that we can have a, a good discussion about the validity of that thinking. And this book does that for sure, right up until that punchline. <laughs> <laughs> Pam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for bringing us such great books. This was one of mine, so I guess it's your turn to bring us a book for next yeah. month. <laughs> I was going to say thank you for bringing me. You've really introduced me to Blake Crouch, who's an author I hadn't read before. So it's always so much fun to see you guys. Thank you for having me. Scroll with it. Brings us to our scroll with it. There's some things happening this week, Chip. I don't know how your calendar looks, but I've got Monty Python Day, the celebration of the television show Monty Python's Flying Circus coming up this week. That's a dead parrot, Steve. <laughs> it's just resting. <laughs> I love Monty Python. Much of my comedy is based on Monty Python, and those guys writing those intelligent jokes is, is something to behold. There say is... no more, say no more. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> there is a pop culture event happening this week. New York Comic Con is happening this weekend. I wish that I had a way to get to New York City this week. There's a great lineup of guests, and it's a three-day weekend. We've got Columbus Day, also known as Indigenous Peoples Day, coming up on Monday. Isn't that interesting? In fact, Columbus Day is a federal holiday. And many other countries, Central American countries, celebrate it. It is basically um, celebrated as the day, I don't know, Europeans arrived in the new land. Or it could be viewed as an Italian day, is really what it's turned into. point of view, yeah. It's all about perspective on, on the, the holiday that is Columbus Day, huh? Yeah, and then many... Um, Many cities and many states are abandoning Columbus Day as, as a namesake mm -hmm. and going to uh, something that is Indigenous Peoples Day. Mm -hmm. So it's it is a blurred holiday, but on the federal level, if you're a federal employee or a bank employee, I think you get the day off. Yeah, take the day off. No school. No school, kids. Three-day weekend. <laughs> Call it what you will. One of the things that we've talked about a little bit is the idea of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and uh, the, their value, the valuable digital resource that is NFTs. Yeah, anybody who reads about these initially is going to be just baffled. Mm -hmm. It's digital artwork. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And then you can own a piece of digital artwork and that it's supposed to have value. Uh-huh. But, as, I don't know, Steve, as many things that many people have a hard time understanding if they could even have value, mm -hmm. um, suddenly somebody has an epiphany and recognizes, holy cow, this may be nothing. Mm -hmm. And guess what? The, uh, the volume of trading for um, this has dropped 97% since January. So imagine buying like a digital piece of art millions of dollars you, and you have the right to it mm -hmm. whatever that really means and then somebody saying okay um anyway uh well people aren't buying it and it, there's the real challenge if, if you are unable to unload it when you're ready to that that certainly could be a, a real challenge the, the trading volume reached a record high of 17 billion in january it was 466 million in September. And that was uh, Bloomberg uh, mm -hmm. is reporting that. That's just amazing, Steve. 
it, it's fascinating to see a big, massive change like that. The idea of an NFT, a digital file that you can purchase ownership over, but anybody can still see that material. So what does ownership over a digital file really mean if what's on the file is something that is readily available to be viewed? It's baffling. Well, it, it just seems like a Ponzi scheme. Uh, it, it might. It might. It, it seems like the emperor, the emperor had, doesn't have his clothes. It's, mm -hmm. I mean, it really has that sort of false ownership to it. And, and false value. Like, what is the true value of this? Uh, we, we talk about the art world and, and valuing art and the, the trading that goes on with that. And this is trying to get into that market, but it's digital. It is not physical material. So how can it hold value when it's infinitely copyable? Yeah. Yeah. That's a very interesting blip in the art world in the 21st century. Well, as always, Steve, it's a blessing when Pampador comes to visit us for these shows. Do mm -hmm. you want to announce our next book and mm -hmm. when we should read it by? Yes, you can read along with us. We've done this a couple of times. Our Halloween spooky book of the month is The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. This is a very classic gothic horror novel published in 1959. So you can pick up a copy of The Haunting of Hill House and read along with us. We are going to discuss it on October 25th. So you've got a couple of weeks to, to get your spooky ghost story and, and all of the, I, I know how much Pam's going to bring to our discussion of this, because there's a lot to discuss with that Gothic and all of the literary pieces of the spooky book. And, and, and send us questions or send us uh, comments mm -hmm. and we'll add them to our discussion too. Absolutely. We would love to have you be a part of our discussion. Send us your feelings about the haunting of Hill House. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS or send us an email, too much scrolling at gmail.com. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. As long as it's spooky. Thank you all for joining us. We would love to hear from you. Our website is too much scrolling.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on iTunes and Stitcher and tune in radio. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of too much scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to too much scrolling. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hessenflow. We'll see you in the future. <laughs>